Hello everyone, Charlotte Norsworthy here, hopping on really quickly before the start of the episode to let you know that this episode, along with the remaining episodes for Season 8, were pre-recorded before the outbreak of COVID-19. The University of Georgia is moving into an online-only campus for the remainder of spring 2020. We will continue to release episodes for the lead for the remainder of Season 8, but these episodes were pre-recorded before the outbreak. I hope that you are all well, staying indoors. And now over to The Lead. Welcome to The Lead, a podcast about how to get ahead in the media industry from the people who did. I'm Charlotte Norsworthy. In this episode of The Lead, I talk to Randy Travis, a Peabody award-winning investigative reporter for Fox 5 Atlanta. Randy joined WAGA in 1990, and in 1994, he moved to the station's distinguished investigative unit, the Fox 5 I-Team. Since then, his stories have led to businesses closing that misled the public, exposed government waste and corruption, and even sparked criminal investigations that ultimately sent people to prison. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership at the University of Georgia's Grady College. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash coxinstitute. Now, here's the lead. Well, thank you for being here today, Randy. It's a pleasure to have you here. Glad to be back. So let's start with your background. As you mentioned, you're back here at Grady. You graduated in 1982. Were you always drawn to broadcast news, even back then? You know, I was. Uh, I grew up in Athens. My dad was a biochemistry professor here, so Grady was really my backyard playpen, so to speak. So in high school, we would come over here and... Uh, uh, they let us practice in the uh, studios down in the basement. Uh, I guess we are in the basement. Uh, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Got to, We were not allowed to be in the color studio. We had to be in the black and white studio because the color TV, color TV studio was the cutting edge technology. And that was only for the paying customers, not us high school kids. But, you know, I was always interested in journalism. Um, you know, I, I would get the newspaper uh, off the driveway every morning. And uh, we lived in England for a year when Dad was on sabbatical. So that was my sophomore year of high school at Cedar Shoals. And, um, and I started reading the International Herald Tribune every day just to find out what was going on back home and to check the, the Brave scores, looking for the box scores in the newspaper. But I just got in the habit of, of learning about the world through journalism. And then when I got back home to, um, to high school, I joined the high school newspaper and, um, and became the drama club president and, and just sort of moved on from there. I um, was able to get a, a part-time job uh, covering sports uh, with the Athens Banner Herald Daily News when I was still in school, which was fantastic because it gave me real life experience. I mean, I was covering Little League High School, some some Georgia. Every once in a while, we cover some professional sports. But it wasn't really what I was covering. It was getting in the habit of writing on deadline and writing stories that were colorful and you know interesting to read. Um, and that ultimately got me my first job in television. So as you were reporting and learning to report for the first time, were you did it just sort of click for you? Or was it something that was sort of uh, difficult for you to catch on to at first? I think the best writers are people who read a lot, and I love to read. So um, I was always walking around with a book in my hand, and no matter when or where. I always had books. Uh, and so I think words just kind of flowed more easily out of me because I read so much. Um, and I like to write. Uh, I like to write every day if I can. 
It's in fact that's what I urge people to do if they want to go into this business. Any any journalism related business is to write something as much as possible, no matter if it's broadcasting or, or print. Just just get in the habit of writing because that's really the foundation. It's the bedrock of anything we do. So what makes broadcast news then different for you? How is that transition over from, say, text reporting over on screen? Well, when I was, when I was a sports writer, I was actually a full-time uh, sports editor for the Athens Observer. It's not around anymore, but uh, I got to, to work there while I was still in school. And I love sports. But I, I thought, you know, I, I, I guess this was one of the smartest things I did or thought of when I was in college is I said, I'm not sure newspapers have a huge future. Uh, the television just seems to be the way people are going, and and broadcasting seems to be, you know, broadcast news seem to be a, a better career than broadcast sports because I love sports so much. I didn't want to make it my job. I wanted to have some fun afterward. I figured if I'm you know, covering these guys every day, I don't want to have to be worried about it as a job when I was home trying to relax. So I decided to go into news and have sports as my as sort of my hobby, um, and I do it. I do some sports reporting every once in a while. But um, back to your original question, I think broadcasting just reaches more people, and it's always going to reach more people. Um, and I think we need to have people in that business who are serious about news, not people who want to be on television, but who want to get the facts right and then just make sure it gets out to the people as as far as you can spread it. So you've been on the investigative team since 1994. What would you say is the biggest lesson in investigative journalism that you've learned over the years? I will tell you that um, yeah, I joined. I, I went. To, uh, I started at, at Fox Five when it wasn't even Fox Five. It was WAGA. We were the CBS station in 1990, and in '94 we switched from CBS to Fox. And the only thing I knew about Fox at that time was Homer Simpson, right? And we had a, a motto back then. It was dedicated, determined, dependable. And we were all joking around that they're going to change our motto to dedicated, determined, dependable, duh, oh, four Ds. And oh. I just didn't really, I was a little worried, honestly. But we decided to expand the investigative unit. Back then it was just a reporter and a photographer. And he was on the air maybe during the ratings periods, which is you know February, May, and, and November. Well, we decided to expand the unit to be on the air as much as possible every week with an investigative story. Um, and so we added more people. We expanded it to eight people. And that was the best thing I ever had happen to me. Uh, because I'll be, I'll be honest, being a general assignment reporter, which is what I was, can be depressing. We cover a lot of very sad news. And there were days when I thought, I'm just unfortunately reading a story about some tragic way in which someone died. And I'm not quite sure how that helps the world. Because, you know, we're here, at Grady, to do better things in the world, to make the world a better place. And I, I really struggled with that at times. And then when Fox, uh, when we switched over to Fox, and then a few years later, Fox ended up buying us and many other TV stations, it was a godsend. Because I'm, they moved me down from the general assignment desk to the investigative unit because I could write fast. I've always been able to write fast. And they wanted fast investigative uh, stories on the air, not not rushed or sloppy, but just stories that could be produced quicker. And uh, now every story I do makes a difference. Every story helps either someone save money or, or saves tax dollars or maybe puts a bad guy in jail. Uh, I mean, there are very few days where I walk away from a story not thinking that I've actually improved a lot in lives of our viewers. And it's just, it's very self-satisfying. 
So in the investigative process, let's say you're, you're given a story assignment, <clears throat> what would you say, is there a specific element about the process that you really enjoy or that you find that you specialize in? So you're the documents guy, you're, you're the Excel spreadsheet guy. Uh, is, there, is there an element about the investigative process that, that is your niche? Well, um, I joined the unit uh, with uh, Dale Russell already there, and Dale is the senior investigative reporter, and he has already made his mark on government reporting. Um, so I thought, well, I'm not going to try to reinvent the wheel here. Dale's doing such a great job on that front, uh, on political reporting. I'll do some political reporting, but let me figure out something else I can do, and that's basically everything else. Um, uh, so I am... I am really the jack of all trades. I, I mean, like, for example, last month we did an investigation about a sex scandal in a local sheriff's office. And we did a story about a guy who was a uh, two-part series undercover investigation about a guy who was faking his military credentials, claiming he was a SEAL when he was certainly not. And, and then we did a, a series about which cities in Georgia rely the most on ticket revenue to, uh, make their, uh, to balance their budgets. All of those are, are legitimate investigative stories, and none of them is like the other. Uh, they're all, um, you know, in different um, categories, I guess. But I love it because I think you can parachute me into any type of investigation like that, and I can pretty much learn on the fly and, and be a semi-expert by the time the story hits the air. You know, I guess to specifically answer your question, I do like the, the hidden camera investigations. There are some very specific rules we have to follow. Every investigation that involves a hidden camera is signed off by our legal folks. And um, um, I, I think that even though we're kind of being deceptive in a way, it's the most honest form of investigative reporting because you're clearly gathering the element that you're talking about. If you don't believe me, just look at this video. Just listen to this audio. Here's what we gathered. This is what's happening, and this is why it's bad. Do you think whenever you have actual footage of something that it resonates with an audience better than if you have, say, a 75-page PDF document? I think so because, you know, uh, lawyers or prosecutors call it the CSI effect. Uh, jurors will not, in, uh, will not convict oftentimes if they don't see the actual crime being committed, the, uh, you know, somehow they've gotten the, the, uh, the evidence from a lab and here it is, boom, and, you know, the DNA for the, the big story or the big uh, case. And it's the same with our viewers now. I think we've worked so hard to get them the surveillance video or some sort of other moment that the police have gathered that, that shows the crime being committed that they get let down or they feel let down uh, if they don't see that crime being committed again uh, in your story. Um, and if you don't have that, you have to write the story in such a way where you explain why you don't have it and, and, and build up uh, other pieces of evidence so that they are convinced that what you're telling them is true. Over the course of your uh, career in investigative news, what has been the most challenging story that you've had to work on, either because it's so difficult to uh, access information, perhaps, or it's, it's emotionally draining? Well, um, I guess one of the ones that was really challenging was, uh, uh, I'm a big um, animal lover, and there was a, a tip we got about a woman up in North Georgia in Raven County who had built this fantastic reputation for saving all these unwanted dogs. She had this program called the Lucky Dog Program, where if you had a dog and you're, for some reason you couldn't take care of this dog anymore, but you didn't want to take it to the pound, 
um, you she, you could give it to her, and she would find a good home for it. And she would, uh, as long as you gave her $30, and that would be paying the adoption fee up front. Sometimes it was $50, sometimes it was $100. It, it moved around, but that was that was the lucky dog fee. And, and then she would send you a, a letter saying your dog has found this forever home. There'd be a picture of your dog with someone, and it was all a big lie. It was all a big lie. What she was doing is she was secretly killing the dogs and then keeping your money and, it, and feeding her gambling habit at a casino up in Cherokee. So we, we went up to do a hidden camera investigation on this. We had someone on the inside you know, telling us what was going on. She was so frustrated she didn't know what to do. Um, she was you know, a, a worker there. And so we went in as um, p- potential adopters. And um, my, my uh, hidden camera disguise is to do this. Take off my glasses. Uh, and, I, and now I'm putting my glasses back on so I can see you, Charlotte. But, uh, <laughs> but no, I would take my glasses off and put a baseball cap on. And I put some contacts on. And nobody recognizes me, which is amazing. As long as I keep my mouth shut, don't talk a lot. Uh, so I walked in with uh, an intern we had and, and a photographer. And we looked at the dogs. And there were two lucky dogs that were in the in the kennel there. And they were just happy and healthy and, and, and excited to see us. And then we, so we got all the video. We were able to get some uh, sound, undercover sound with the the director of the target investigation promising all these things. And then we drove away. We took off the gear we, and we, to meet our whistleblower. And she came down on her lunch break to do the interview because she was going to quit that day. And she said, you know those two dogs that you played with? They're dead now. I said, what are you talking about? She says, we just killed them. Uh, I said, why? They weren't even sick. And she goes, well, the, we, have, we need more room, she said, in the kennel. So we did a, <coughs> excuse me, a big investigation about that. We showed up. Asked her a bunch of questions that she wasn't happy to hear or receive. Ultimately, the the, uh, DA's office saw our investigation, and they uh, arrested her, indicted her. And um, her attorney tried to blame us during the trial, saying that we were the reason why she was being prosecuted, not because she committed all these crimes. But we covered it. Now she's serving 10 years in the state prison system. That's that's so insanely difficult. I'm I'm a huge uh, animal person, and that's just absolutely awful. To pivot then uh, and and perhaps uh, lighten the mood, um, what would you say then looking forward into the future for local broadcast stations, what is a um, perhaps a challenge that that local broadcast news is going to be faced with in the future and how how do you suspect that they should overcome it? Well, there's so much more competition now for eyeballs than when I got in the business 37 years ago. Uh, You know, we only had three networks and there was no Netflix or no phones that you could spend, you know, hours and hours of your time on. Um, so we have to make sure that people realize that we're still relevant to what's going on. Um, I really preach about investigative reporting, not just because I'm in it, but because it's really our patriotic duty as reporters. There's only one private industry protected by name in the Constitution, the press. They did that because they wanted to make sure that you know, we could keep an eye on government. They were concerned about government, the founding fathers. They wanted to make sure that the people could be protected. So I go at it not from a business perspective or even a journalism perspective, but a perspective of patriotism. We are the reason why government is the way it is. Uh, We protect our freedoms. Um, People say that Hitler came to power because he took away all the guns. Not true. He came to power because he took away all the newspapers. There were no opposing voices. There were, there were no voices at all. 
to say, hey, wait a minute, what are you doing? And I'm not saying that we'll ever have a Hitler in our country, but but maybe if we'd done a better job in World War II, we wouldn't have had the Japanese internment camps. You know, maybe if we'd done a better job in the 60s or, or in the, the 30s, maybe we would have had Jim Crow laws. Um, you know, we are what separates um, a good country from a bad country. And the investigative reporters are the ones who really are at the, I guess, the, the tip of the spear there. Um, so, you know, we, we need to challenge government no matter who's in office, no matter which party. In fact, in Atlanta, you know, we take on, you know, Democrats in the city because they're in charge of the city. We take on Republicans in the state because they're right now in charge of the state. So, you know, we don't have any particular sacred cows or anybody that we focus on. It's just whoever's in power. And that's what we should do. That's the only way to really make our country work. As a closing question for you, looking back on a very successful career of investigative journalism, for those students seeking to to dive right in to investigative news, either on the broadcast front, on the text front, wherever it might be, what piece of advice would you offer to those students entering this world for the first time, and what can a student do to be competitive? This sounds like a um, a silly answer, but they should be informed. I mean, you should assume a Grady graduate is informed. In fact, in fact, they should be the most informed of anybody in their social network, more so than the business major friend of theirs or the biology major friend of theirs. They should be the one who knows what's going on in the world. And I find, sadly, when I talk to some students who are journalism majors or want to be journalists, that they're not watching a newscast every day. They should. They're not reading a newspaper every day. They need to. You know, if if we're not informed, then we're not going to be able to challenge people who may have information or beliefs that are not factually based. Um, so if you are informed, you can go into a news director who's who's interviewing you for a job and talk to him or her about what's going on. Impress him or her that you are on top of things. And that will go a long way. You, that, sadly, that will separate you from so many other people who are applying for those same jobs. Just be informed. The second thing, almost as important, I'd say equally important, is to be able to be a good writer. Um, as I said, you know, writing is the, is the foundation of what we do, uh, whether you're in television or newspaper or digital or whatever. You've got to be able to write, to tell a story, to, to, to be able to spell correctly not rely on spell check. God forbid somebody you know relies on spell check and there's and there there and there are all spelled correctly, but they're not being used properly. Um, and to read your your stories out loud before you submit them to a professor or to uh, an editor once you do get the job, because you will always make mistakes. Um, that that's my that's my big beef with uh, with interns who come and work with us in the IT team. They give me a story and say, How, "What do you think?" I said, "Well, did you read this out loud?" No, well, go back and read that line and then try and try again. So just remember, all it takes is one boss, one person to say yes, and you're in the door. And the rest of it's up to you. Randy, that was amazing. Thank you so much for an incredible interview. My pleasure. Thank you for tuning into The Lead. I'm your host, Charlotte Norsworthy. This episode was produced with guidance from Keith Herndon, director of the Cox Institute at the University of Georgia. For more episodes with interesting media leaders, subscribe to The Lead on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Until next time.